Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Nourish Gut podcast. This is a different voice on the podcast today. My name is Bernadette Field-Dodgson and I'm a naturopath who works alongside Carly in the Nourished Gut Clinic and within her Nourished Gut group program. Today, I'm here to talk to you about the paediatric microbiome, which is a topic that I'm personally interested in, not only because I have children and I know like a lot of other parents, you only want the best for your kids' health, um, but also because I'm a gut health naturopath nerd <laughs> who is fascinated by this stuff. And um, I know from all my research into the area that supporting the um, a really healthy microbiome in children, even from the very start, has huge impacts in the potential for health and disease for these little people later on in life. So today, what we're going to talk about is what is the paediatric microbiome and where a child's microbiome comes from. We'll talk about the critical windows for a child's microbiome development from birth, through the feeding methods as an infant, to starting solids, weaning from breast milk or formula, to their ongoing diet and lifestyle practices. We'll talk about why the pediatric microbiome is so important for their health, not only during their time as babies and toddlers and children, but for the rest of their lives. And we'll talk about how to support a child's microbiome, no matter which twists and turns their health journey has taken them on so far. We'll talk about a microbiome nourishing diet, what that looks like, and I'll give you some tips for helping fussy eaters. And we'll also talk about how to help children take supplements if they're indicated or prescribed for your kids. Before we get into all of this, I want to say a few words to the parents listening. The purpose um, of sharing this information about the ideal conditions to nourish a healthy microbiome in children is not to bring a spotlight of judgment to your decisions or to your family situation. The last thing I want is for parents to listen and feel shame or guilt. Perhaps if you knew more about the microbiome, you might have made different decisions for your family, but you can only do better when you know better. I have had three babies and I was a naturopath with a strong interest in gut health before my first baby was born and still with what I know now and the research that has been released in recent years there would have been things that I would have done differently if I knew then what I know now. No matter the way in which your baby was born, how they were fed, what they were weaned on, 
what sort of environment they've been brought up in, you can still work on supporting your child's microbiome. And I want this podcast to empower you with the knowledge on how to do that. So the microbiome that we'll be talking about today is particularly a, a child's gut microbiome, although we, have, we know that there are species that live on children's and adult skin and in the lungs, um, in the vagina and urinary organs even, we know that the majority of microbial species that reside in or on our body reside within the gut. And the gut microbiome can be described as its own organ because of all the function that it has in helping the body. Some ways that a healthy gut microbiome can help to promote good health include modulating the immune system, enhancing gastrointestinal forward-moving motility, something that we get quite concerned about if we have a child that has constipation or diarrhea. We want to make sure that things are heading in the right way and not too fast and not too slow. A healthy infant microbiome also helps with improving digestion and nutrient absorption, producing some nutrients, metabolizing certain medications or herbs, producing short-chain fatty acids that helps to protect the gut lining and reduce inflammation and improve mineral absorption and protect against colon cancer. I could go on. Healthy adults have over 1,000 species residing in their guts, and a healthy microbiome in adults is usually one with a high number of species spread out rather evenly, or that's described as high diversity. And there are more microorganisms present in, a, in an adult gut than there are cells in their body. So we're not born with a gut microbiome that looks like this or works like this. In fact, babies in the womb up until their birthday live in a relatively sterile environment. When babies are first born, as well as having to build a microbiome, they initially have a quite immature gut barrier function and immunity. And they have other factors that make them more vulnerable to infection, such as lower stomach acid production. So where does their microbiome come from? Well, there's a sequence of events and circumstances from how they're born to how babies are fed and the environment that they're in, which will determine which the initial microbes are that will initially seed the gut and what sequence the microbiome development will take. We know from research that a baby's gut looks very different from an adult's. To start with, babies have low microbe numbers and low species diversity. The microbiota goes through a number of steps in development, which includes changing of the dominant microbes, which do specific jobs for specific developmental stages they're in. And this is an important distinction. Any factor that changes the microbes in, that a baby is exposed to and what those microbes feed on can interrupt the usual stages of development of the microbiome, essentially skipping ahead and making a baby's microbiome look more like an adult's, which sounds like it would be a good thing. Um, however, skipping ahead and missing out on crucial infant microbiome stages means that a child is essentially missing out on some of the gut training support. The period of time with the most rapid change in a child's microbiome is in their first year of life. 
And for the next couple of years, a baby's microbiota or microbiome enters a transitional stage where the microbiome starts to look more like an adult's. And for children who are around 30 months old, almost three years old and upward, their microbiome is a more stable um, environment where there's much less change in species and the microbiome looks and functions more like an adult microbiome. So what are the factors that can interrupt normal development of the microbiome in the early crucial stages of development? These are things like preterm birth, cesarean section birth, because our C-section babies miss out on that initial inoculation of vaginal and fecal microbes that they would be exposed to if they had a vaginal birth. Antibiotic exposure can disrupt that normal microbiome development, whether that be antibiotics that are delivered to the mother during a C-section or a mother that receives antibiotics during labour or antibiotics delivered to a baby after birth or any antibiotic course uh, delivered to young children or any time um, in their childhood. We know that for adults, some antibiotic exposures the adult microbiome can take up to four years to recover from and some species will never recover from antibiotic exposure. So that is something significant that can make some changes. And if a baby's not receiving breast milk, that also affects the microbiome development because human breast milk contains between 100 and 600 microbial species and special prebiotics called human milk oligosaccharides, which are helpful for um, gut microbiome species to thrive, among other beneficial qualities. So what are the health issues that are linked with early microbiome disturbances? They can range from immune dysregulation, such as food allergy, asthma, inflammatory bowel disease, and celiac disease, to autism spectrum disorders, to necrotizing enterocolitis, to infantile colic, to obesity, to type 2 diabetes, to cardiovascular disease. I'm sure that any parent who's listening, who's pregnant, for example, and planning a medically necessary C-section, or who couldn't breastfeed, or if their baby was given an early course of antibiotics, is thinking, well, is there anything I can do to mitigate the risk of long-term consequences to these interruptions in my child's microbiome? Yes, there is. And let's talk about some strategies. The most protective thing that you can do to support a baby's microbiome after a C-section birth is to breastfeed. Studies show that microbiome changes after a cesarean are partially restored when babies are breastfed. Additionally, these babies um, have a decrease in respiratory tract infections and diarrhea. Having a C-section can make the initiation of breastfeeding more challenging. Women don't have the hormonal cascade of a vaginal birth that helps them to breastfeed. So if you are planning on having a C-section birth and you would like to breastfeed, seek out information and support before the end of your pregnancy to set yourself up for success. The Australian Breastfeeding Association and the La Leche League are great organisations that could help you find the information you need um, and perhaps a good local lactation consultant.
Something you might also want to plan if you're planning a C-section um, is to express some colostrum prior to the C-section and bringing it to the hospital with you. Because if you're unable to breastfeed initially after birth, you will have a supply of beneficial bacteria rich, prebiotic rich, immune system promoting liquid gold ready to go. And here's a tip I heard from another naturopath who is also a lactation consultant. She said, don't plan your C-section for a Friday if you're doing a planned C-section. And that's because during the week, on weekdays, hospitals will often have more resources and more lactation support staff around. After birth, no matter which way your baby was born, request to have minimally interrupted skin-to-skin contact. Babies acquire some of their microbes from being in contact with your skin. If a mother is unable to do skin-to-skin, the non-birthing parent could do skin-to-skin contact with the baby. Babies acquire microbes from the environment all around them. In a hospital environment, less exposure to hospital surfaces and staff members may help to reduce the transfer of hospital environment microbes, such as antibiotic-resistant microbes, to your baby. If you can't or you don't want to breastfeed, consider seeking out donor breast milk. You can obtain um, donor breast milk from a milk bank um, and these will be greened and pasteurized or from a known donor who is confirmed to be free of transmissible infections such as HIV. Appropriate handling, transportation and storage procedures are important and some hospitals will have milk banks on site and reserve breast milk for preterm babies. We know that neonates who feed on either their mother's own milk or donor milk have a much lower risk of um, developing necrotizing endocolitis or late onset sepsis, which are both serious conditions in a preterm infant. So if your baby is formula fed, how can you mitigate the microbiome changes that come from not breastfeeding or from a shorter duration of breastfeeding? Studies show that adding prebiotics to formula milk, such as fructooligosaccharides or galactooligosaccharides, can help to support microbial populations to look a bit more like a breastfed infant's gut. Studies have shown that prebiotic supplementation of formula-fed babies can lead to reduced eczema and asthma compared to other formula-fed babies. There's a human milk oligosaccharide called 2-fructose-selactose, or 2-FL, which is a single human milk oligosaccharide um, that is in production now, and it has recently been approved for use in Australian formulas. Um, So that's something that you might see coming out. The, The studies so far in terms of baby's microbiome results to um, 2FL, HMO, is looking really good. Some formulas do have added prebiotics already, but not all of them are in the therapeutic amount and the amount that's been studied to have benefits. So you can talk to a microbiome knowledgeable practitioner to get some specific recommendations for prebiotic supplementation for your child. And we can also consider adding some probiotic supplementation to babies who um, are on formula. And we know that um, probiotics can help 
the microbiome in a few ways, like decreasing antibiotic-associated adverse events like diarrhea and candida infection. There are some studies that shows it helps to prevent food allergy and accelerates tolerance to cow's milk, which is important in formula-fed infants because most formulas are based on cow's milk. Probiotics can help to improve gut barrier function in formula-fed infants. And a study has shown that babies who are supplemented with probiotics who are on formula have decreased gastrointestinal infections and upper, upper respiratory tract infections. Probiotic supplementation is something that I would consider after antibiotics that are um, administered at birth, no matter if baby is breastfed or formula fed. But I would, in a breastfed baby, consider giving that probiotic to mum instead of baby because we know that some strains of probiotics can pass through breast milk. So probiotics are known to minimise the damage to the microbiome and can also minimise side effects of antibiotics. If your child is on a course of antibiotics for any reason, you can give probiotic alongside antibiotics. And Carly actually has a resource on her website um, about antibiotic recovery and, and how to give probiotics alongside antibiotics and which strains are the most appropriate. Speaking of antibiotics... If you're breastfeeding your baby and you need to take antibiotics, you usually don't have to stop breastfeeding or you don't have to pump and dump your milk. Studies show that for most antibiotics, the amount of medication that shows up in breast milk is around 1% of an infant dose. You can talk to a pharmacist about the particular antibiotic that you've been prescribed to get that peace of mind as well. But I thought I would mention that. Don't be um, scared of harming your infant's microbiome if you need to be taking antibiotics. Of course, um, oral and systemic antibiotics have the greatest effect on the microbiome. However, there are some other types of antiseptic substances that people keep in their home and have no idea that it could, protect, it could affect the gut microbiome. As a worldwide community, we've become more conscious of sanitation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of us have never sanitized our hands more and many people actively seek out antimicrobial products to use in their homes, from surface sprays to dish soap to toothpastes that have antiseptics in them. And while none of these products are designed for ingestion, some antimicrobial substances can be absorbed through the skin. A prime example of this is the use of products containing triclosan, an antimicrobial that's banned now in the United States but not yet in Australia. Products containing this have been associated with unfavorable changes to the skin microbiome, to the lung microbiome and to the gut microbiome. Younger children might be particularly more vulnerable because they tend to touch a lot of surfaces that might be cleaned with antiseptic products and they tend to put hands in their mouth quite frequently. Reducing microbes in the environment can also reduce children's exposure to non-pathogenic um, commensal bacteria. So these are the non-harmful bacteria that can help to diversify the gut microbiome and among other good things, protect their human host from infections. 
to protect and grow the gut microbiome in children, it's a good idea to minimise the over-sanitation of their home environment. Don't be afraid to ditch antiseptic products and use plain old water and soap. There is no evidence that antibacterial soaps are more effective than plain soap for preventing infection in most circumstances in the home or in public places. There is one family of microbes in the home environment that I want to bring attention to, which we do want to avoid exposing our children to if possible, and that is the fungal family of mould. Studies have shown that mould and dampness at home is associated with poorer cognitive function and behavioural problems during childhood. A study released just a couple of months ago showed that childhood exposure to diverse indoor fungal communities is associated with better behavioural and cognitive outcomes, whereas higher indoor microbial load is associated with worse outcomes. The cause of mould in the home is dampness, so mould prevention strategies will need to take into account adequate ventilation, ensuring there are no leaks in plumbing, avoiding building garden beds against the walls of the house, considering if there is appropriate waterproofing of barriers in the wet areas of the home, avoiding putting damp clothes or linen in wardrobes, potentially investing in a dehumidifier and if you live in an area which has been sadly affected by flooding, adequate remediation of water damage and testing to see if um, any areas you can't see very well with your eyes have mould if necessary. Other than that caveat, exposure to a variety of microbes in the environment and especially from pets or farm animals is associated with a healthier child gut microbiome. For example, three-month-old babies exposed to furry pets in the home have increased abundance of two gut bacteria, which have been negatively associated with the development of childhood allergic diseases and obesity. Here are some practical tips for increasing exposure to a variety of environmental microbes. Having a pet at home or visiting friends or family who do. Spending time in a variety of different outdoor environments. Choosing, if you have the ability to, a forest school or a nature-based daycare for your child. Having a home veggie patch or even just a few pots that might have herbs or strawberry plants, which a child can help you tend to. Visiting farms or attending country shows where children can have exposure to farm animals. And as a segue to talking about food... You can increase your child's microbial exposure when you offer your child fermented foods to eat and drink. Some examples of these are sauerkraut, yogurt, lacto-fermented unpasteurized pickles. Those are the kinds that you find um, in the fridge at the supermarket, not on the shelf. Kombucha, which um, I would recommend just small amounts in childhood because it does have some caffeine and it does have some sugar in it. Water kefir, milk kefir and unpasteurised cheeses all have microbes that do the fermentation and can introduce more diversity to your child's gut. The foods we eat can also feed the microbial species of the gut. And there are certain eating patterns that are associated with higher microbiome diversity and with promoting more 
quite unquote good gut bugs, which help to protect a child from infections and helps their microbiome to produce beneficial metabolites. Firstly, we know that plant food diversity in the diet is associated with better diversity in the gut microbiome. There was a great study published on this where researchers found that people who ate 30 or more different plant-based foods over the course of a week had a much greater microbiome diversity than those people who ate uh, 10 or less plant foods in a week. Now, Carly has a really great ebook on this topic called the Gut 40 ebook. You can find it at carlyraven.com in the freebies tab. And she challenges you to aim for 40 different plant foods in your diet each week. And if you fall short, you'll likely be close to the, that 30 plant foods as described in the research study. I like to involve my children when I do a gut 40 challenge. As well as diversity of the types of plant foods, I like to aim for a diversity in colors of the plant foods that we are consuming. So I divide up a piece of paper into sections and label each section with a different color. Red, yellow, green, purple, blue, orange, brown, and white. And I ask my kids to decorate each of those sections with the corresponding color. And they do some drawing and some pictures of foods. Over the course of the week, each time we eat a different plant food, we write it down in its color section. For example, in the red section, by the end of the week, we might have tomato, apple, strawberry, radishes, red capsicum, red skin potatoes. The brown section is where we would write things down like brown rice, almonds, brown mushrooms or kidney beans. In the blue-purple section, we might have blueberries, red onion, purple carrot, eggplant, etc. The chart is a really good way to get the kids involved, and it's a really good way to check if you're getting a variety of different foods in different colours that delivers a variety of different phytonutrients. My kids get to monitor as the week goes on, and they'll often tell me if they're concerned because we haven't eaten enough orange foods. Another quick tip for doing a gut 40 challenge is that herbs and spices count um, towards your plant food lineup. So sprinkle some dried herbs or put a bit of paprika or some cumin into a dish and that's easily helping you add up those numbers of foods that you and your child get exposed to each week. As well as plant food diversity, we can nourish the friendly bugs in our gut by focusing on including polyphenol rich food, prebiotic rich food and resistant starch rich foods in our diet and in our children's diet. So polyphenol rich foods are foods that are rich in color. Some examples include berries, cherries, pomegranates. Um, pomegranate juice is also rich in polyphenols and that is um, one juice that I do carry in my home. Um, we, we don't do many fruit juices because they're just, you know, too high in sugar and low in fiber um, for really young children. But pomegranate juice I make an exception for because it's just so rich in these polyphenols. Other polyphenol-rich foods include plums, flax seeds, hazelnuts, almonds, purple carrot, purple cabbage, red onions, broccoli, red rice, black rice. You get the picture, these deeply colored foods. Rye, bread, black olives and olive oil. And my personal favorite, cocoa powder. 
And my favorite way to deliver cocoa powder in a gut microbiome nourishing way is to um, mash up a banana and mix cocoa powder in there. So if you like dark chocolate or your, or your child could do a really deep chocolatey taste, you can put two heaped teaspoons of cocoa powder with one banana that you mash up and mix together. Your child might want to eat it just like that, or you can add some chia seeds and some milk and turn it into a chocolate banana chia pudding. So which foods are rich in prebiotics? Prebiotics are um, special fibers that feed the gut bugs and help them to produce beneficial metabolites. So one uh, prebiotic is called uh, fructooligosaccharides, and you can find them in Jerusalem artichokes, burdock roots, chicory root, dandelion greens, in the very common and delicious foods of onion, garlic and leeks, asparagus and globe artichokes. Another prebiotic rich food are galacto-oligosaccharides and the foods that are richest in these ones are legumes and like your lentils and your beans. They're also in brassica family vegetables, so broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprout family. They're in fresh beans and beetroot. Another prebiotic that's really healthy for the gut is pectin. And you can find pectin in many fruits, but especially apples. And you can supercharge the amount of pectin in apples by cooking them. So simply chop up apples into small pieces and you can put them in a saucepan with a little bit of water in the bottom. Um, you can add some cinnamon if you like the flavor and cook over a medium heat, stirring occasionally so that especially before they start softening, nothing sticks to the bottom of the pan. Um, and those apples will soften and break down and become this delicious stewed apple. And you can serve this to kids um, by itself they can have it warm they can have it hot uh, cold um, they can have it um, made into an apple crumble you can serve stewed apple on top of porridge or um, mueslis um, you can even spoon some stewed apple put a few spoons into a smoothie to add a prebiotic pectin boost so from these lists above, you can understand that the most nourishing foods to, the, to a healthy microbiome in children are whole, unprocessed plant foods. When it comes to, to processed foods, I want you to be aware that there are a few additives that may negatively impact a child's microbiome. Sulfates and sulfites can feed unfriendly gut species, which produce inflammatory um, an inflammatory metabolite that can harm the gut lining these are commonly found as a preservative in dried fruits uh, breads and sausages and the additive numbers are to look out for um, on the packaging of packaged foods include 220 221 222 223 224 226 and 227 other foods that can feed potentially harmful hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria are saturated fat and in particular saturated fat from dairy foods. So a study from, of children from the ages of two and eight years old found that children who ate more high fat dairy foods had higher levels of Bolophia wadsworthia, one of the hydrogen sulfide producing species. 
I'm not saying that you shouldn't give dairy to your child. Um, it just might be something that you will want to avoid from having in every meal and perhaps not every day. Many, but not all emulsifiers, which are added to some processed foods, can directly alter the gut microbiota in a manner that promotes intestinal inflammation. So emulsifiers have a detergent-like chemical property. So you can just imagine how that might cause some issues with the gut environment and with the complex microbial community that resides within it. The two emulsifiers that have the highest amount of evidence of negative effect on the microbiome are carboxyl methylcellulose and polysorbate 80. And these are ingredients that you'll see on the packaging of, of some packaged foods. Interestingly, soy lecithin, mono and diglycerides and glycerol olitate did not show significant effects on the human gut microbiome. I also want to make you aware that foods fortified with iron can potentially disrupt a child's microbiome. Iron-enriched foods are particularly marketed as a healthy baby's first food and some health professionals will recommend them. Iron is, of course, an important nutrient to a developing baby or child. However, these foods are usually fortified with iron salts, such as ferrous sulfate, ferrous gluconate, and ferrous fumarate. And these forms of iron are not well absorbed in the small intestine. And then unabsorbed iron that reaches the large intestine can feed the quote-unquote bad gut bugs and reduce species of the friendly gut bugs. It's much safer to deliver iron to children in naturally iron-rich foods, such as moderate amounts of red meat or legumes, especially mung beans. And if a baby needs iron supplementation because they have low levels confirmed with testing, that's the only time that I would supplement a baby, then an iron bisglycinate is a safer supplement to choose. This iron is connected to a protein molecule and is absorbed much more easily in the small intestine. And then you can use lower doses for effective results. And I'll encourage you to work with a practitioner to find the right supplement and the right dose for your child. If you are listening to the lists of microbiome nourishing foods and thinking, that's nice, but my child won't eat those, or you have a fussy eater on your hands, here are some tips for helping your child. So you can try offering veggies in different presentations and preparations. For example, raw carrot sticks versus roasted carrot halves versus grated carrot. You can mix peas in with baked beans because um, these veggies might be enjoyed because they have a yummy sauce now. Some children, including mine, enjoy frozen veggies more than cooked veggies. So I'll often give my kids um, a mix of frozen organic peas, carrots, corn and beans um, and they love eating them frozen. Preserved and fermented veggies count. So pickles, um, look for a brand with low additives, olives, sauerkraut, kimchi. Some kids really love these foods and they definitely count towards um, the veggie content that you're aiming for. Don't overpraise kids for eating veggies or any healthy food and don't shame a child for not eating vegetables. Just keep it quite a neutral zone and don't let it be a power struggle. You can offer your children 
vegetables as dippers. So that might look like carrot sticks, celery sticks, and you can give them as a vehicle to deliver yummy dips. I also love to do a recipe from someone called Plant You, or she's got a blog called Plant You, and that's cooking up potatoes and then smashing them on a baking sheet, putting some olive oil and salt on them, baking them in the oven until they get crispy, and then serving them with a herb-filled dip. And most kids won't eat herbs just sort of by themselves or in salads, but this dip is delicious and my children and my children's friends have just chowed it down. You can also offer veggies in both their plain to see form as well as hidden. So to hide veggies, you can grate vegetables and add them to a, a burger recipe. If you're making a meal with beef mince, you can add finely chopped or grated mushroom, which sort of blends in with the texture and will take on the taste of the dish. I know um, when I lived in Texas, a lot of people would share around a recipe that are called butternut squash mac and cheese, and that's by a blogger called Cookie and Kate. And a lot of mums said that was a successful way that they could hide vegetables for toddlers, but still present um, veggies in plain to see form and let your kids watch you eat your veggies like that too. You can add veggies to smoothies with other flavors that your child enjoys. And you can continue to offer vegetables in a variety of forms, even if they don't like it the first time they try it. Continued exposure can help some children feel more comfortable with trying foods. Another thing you can try is telling your child some interesting facts about vegetables on offer. So if you're serving cucumbers, you can tell them that cucumbers are related to watermelons. Actually, something I did with my kids is sliced some cucumbers sprinkled it with a little bit of sugar and it then tastes just like a watermelon. And my kids have been less dubious about cucumbers ever since. You can tell them other facts like tomatoes are actually fruits and when you eat a really fresh tomato, you can taste the sweetness just like a fruit. Another thing that I thought I would share today is um, some tips to help your child take supplements if they need them, uh, whether they're for the microbiome or for any other reason. For babies younger than six months old, I recommend minimal supplementation because their guts are quite immature um, and there's unknown effects of excipients that are in supplements on that immature uh, microbiome. But as I said earlier, breastfed babies before the age of six months old, it's possible to supplement through the mother, depending on the type of supplement, um, to be, have that delivered through breast milk. And like I said earlier, some supplements such as probiotics or prebiotics can be added to formula milk. Giving prebiotics to older children is generally easy as um, they have little to taste or some of them just taste a little bit sweet. And you can add them in water, um, in a cup or um, in a child's drink bottle. If your child has been prescribed a supplement or a medication that comes in a capsule form, as long as the capsule is not enteric coated and it will say if it is on the packaging, you could open up the capsule and sprinkle it on, onto the food that they will eat or mix it around in some food like um, yogurt where you can hide the contents. Um, but if it's a strong flavor or a disliked taste, 
then you might need to sweeten the deal and um, deliver the contents of the capsule in a sweet vehicle, um, such as in a little bit of jam or for children over one years old, you could mix it with some honey. And the same thing goes for tablets. If they're prescribed um, for your child, as long as they're not enteric coated, you can actually crush tablets um, and mix them with some food or if needed, something a little bit sweeter to help them get down. If your child is prescribed fish oil, there are a few different options. Some kids are fine to take liquid fish oil straight off the spoon. Most fish oils are flavored in a fruit or a mint flavor. And there are also children's fish oil capsules available, which are smaller and the outside of the capsule has a pleasant taste. And if they chew it, the inside fish oil is also flavored. Just make sure that the child keeps the fish oil in their mouth um, when they're chewing. And this is just a personal experience um, note from one of my toddlers um, who a couple of times opened their mouth and got fish oil on their clothing. And that is a smell that does not come out easily. It's really stubborn. Um, and even after washing the clothes, you can still smell fish oil. One of my children will not take a, favorite, a flavored fish oil liquid or kids capsules. And a solution that I've come up with for her is to mix fish oil into a homemade chocolate recipe. I've just provided my recipe to Carly's social media manager. So if you're listening to the podcast soon after it's released, um, you can look back for that recipe in um, Carly Raven's Instagram feed. As an added prebiotic bonus, I've replaced some of the maple syrup in the chocolate recipe with lactulose, um, which is sugar-free, but it's also a prebiotic in small doses. In larger doses, it's a laxative. So I would um, make sure that your child sticks with a low dose and doesn't overdose on fish oil laxative chocolate. The chocolate disguises the fish oil taste really well. Um, in the, when we lived in the US, I would use a liquid fish oil that was orange flavored and the finished food is medicine chocolate. Um, tasted like Jaffa chocolates, if that's a flavor you know. And if you like that orange and chocolate taste together, it was delicious. Um, and since moving back to Australia, I've used both um, lemon-flavoured fish oil and a fruity-flavoured kids' fish oil, and both have worked great flavour-wise um, when incorporated into the chocolate. Another way that my clients have had success um, with getting their kids to take supplements are to mix them up into gummy recipes. And you can find um, recipes for gummies, including gelatin, um, on the internet, but one of the gelatin companies called Nutra Organics um, has plenty of recipes on their website and on their social media feeds as well. I hope that all the information that I've shared has been useful um, for helping you learn about what can influence your child's microbiome, but also empowering to let you know if your child has met some conditions that are unfavorable for microbiome development that no matter where they're up to, there's something that you can do to support your child's microbiome. If you would like personalized advice to do with your child's um, gut health and microbiome, that is something we specialize in the Nourished Gut Clinic. We also offer gut health testing profiles where we can do a deep look into the microbial species um, that are present in children's and in adults' um, fecal microbiome. 
If that's something you're interested in, get in touch with us at the Nourish Gut Clinic. Um, you can find us on carlyraven.com. We have a free resource to share with you to go along with today's episode, and that is an ebook, and it's called The First Steps to Gut Health. And you'll find some information in there about how to support your baby's gut health or your child's gut health, even from preconception through pregnancy, in babyhood, infanthood, and beyond. To find that free resource, head to the show notes and you'll find a link to take you there. Thank you for listening to the Nourished Gut Podcast and thank you for having me as your alternate host. I hope you have a wonderful day and I hope to speak with you again soon. Until then, all the best for your health and for your kiddos' health. Bye-bye. Did you like what you heard? Leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about my Nourished Gut program or the Nourished Gut Kids membership, head over to my website. Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.